you for summertime, and we thank you for uh, all the many things that are going on, Lord. We thank you for the people that uh, can't be here this morning. God, uh, guide them and bless them and help them to be lights for you and, and outreaches for you when they're, when they're outside of this building, Lord. We thank you for those of us that are here this morning. We thank you for kids. We thank you for our families. Um, we thank you for the opportunity we have to, to worship together this morning. Uh, God, we ask that you be with Ben this morning as he uh, brings your word to us, Lord. Help us to um, learn about you and to, and to share that word uh, as we go out this week. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. So we're going to pause Genesis uh, for a specific reason. We've started the process of adding some new deacons in the church. And so uh, this is a great thing, um, and, and, and uh, I believe it will help the church continue to grow in gospel centrality. So uh, for this week and next week, we're going to walk through just kind of what church leadership is, what church leadership isn't. Uh, today, we're going to talk about just how leaders develop within the church and, and what that means, what that looks like. And the next week, we'll get into the specifics of this is what a deacon is, this is what a pastor is, which are the two ordained offices within the church now that we recognize um, how they're similar, how they're different, how they function, the roles, all those things. So uh, the, we're going to bounce around to a lot of text, but the primary text we're going to be in is Ephesians 4, uh, verse 11. And so the way we're doing our, our deacon uh, search is, is the personnel committee, the deacons, and myself worked for almost a, a year uh, writing out... These are the biblical qualifications of what a deacon is. This is how it plays out in Ira Baptist Church. And then uh, how can our church vote on deacons without it being a popularity contest? And so we approved the new bylaws a couple business meetings ago. Um, I have some copies. If you want one, I can give them to you. But basically, this is what will happen. I, I presented the deacons with a list of every male member of our church who has attended within the last year. And at the last deacons meeting, they went through that list and they removed any that were not biblically qualified to be deacons. Um, a couple years ago, I preached through Titus. It was <laughs> the book before Genesis. So if you can get your mind that far back, that's what I did. Uh, and in that uh, sermon series, in that when I was preaching that book, uh, Titus outlines the qualifications for an elder and a pastor, which are very similar to a deacon, and that sermon is still online. It's called Straighten What is Bent, Titus 1, 5 through 9. Qualifications are listed there and walked through. I also preached a sermon uh, the week before that one, walking through our church's mission statement, which is called Ira Baptist's Purpose, where I talked about it there. And last summer, I preached a sermon series called The Church, and those are also available online to re-listen to or to listen to, which also walk through a lot of the way a church functions and how it doesn't function and what it's supposed to be and what it's not supposed to be. Because the reality for us as believers is that much of our understanding of the local church and the universal church is, is not biblical. We add on these ideas of what the church is supposed to be, and we take maybe some things that the church does, like, like mercy ministries, and we elevate those to a level that, that the Bible doesn't have the church to do. And so I would encourage you to look through those, uh, listen to those sermons. These two will be online as well. Um, and, and for those are resources our church has. Uh, and so I've 
I'll just I'll, I'll make this blanket statement. I, I believe this coming deacon election is probably one of the most important and most impactful things I've done for our church since I've been here. Essentially, what we're saying is we're going to put some men in leadership places that are going to lead us into the future that we can't really tell what it's going to look like. So, uh, the deacons that were on that list, I, I called. Uh, I said, "Hey, the deacons think you're qualified. I want you to spend three weeks." praying over if you feel like the Lord's leading you to do this, feel like you're able to do this. And so part of that season of prayer for them is I'm going to preach these two sermons on church leadership. Uh, And then after this series, I'll contact those men. If they still feel led and believe that the Lord's calling that, then then we will uh, keep them on the list. If they don't feel like the Lord's leading them in that direction, we'll remove them. And then the current deacons will look at that list again and make sure everybody's a good fit in the deacon body. And from there, we'll do a special called business meeting. We'll vote on new deacons. We've not set a number on how many we're going to add or not add. We want to see kind of what those look like after we've weeded out and whittled through qualifications and willingness. But the goal is to present the church with a list of men who are willing, qualified, and a good fit to be deacons in the church so that any of them that are elected would be a great fit. Uh, And then once the vote's cast, the new deacons are elected. There will be a waiting period of about a month before the ordination service and the ordination council. And that way, if there's any concerns anybody has with those people, they can bring them up then to me or a current deacon, and we will work through those. And then we'll have an ordination service, we'll ordain the new deacons, and we will plug them in, and then we will grow into a mega church within two weeks. So the danger of doing sermons like this is maybe you're wondering, well, then why am I here if I'm not in the pool of deacons? We as people who live in the Bible Belt in communities that have churches everywhere. And, and largely in communities like our, where we have many middle class people, we have a tendency to un- misunderstand what the church is and what the church is not, and a tendency to misunderstand who leads the church and how they lead the church. And much of our misunderstanding is, living, is driven by a consumeristic and an individualistic mindset. We look at a church and we say if we do something that numerically grows the church or that financially grows the church, then we need to keep doing those things because it looks good in our eyes. And if we do something that doesn't lead to those things, like it needs to be changed. That tends to be our, our metric of whether a church is healthy or not is if they're numerically growing or financially growing as opposed to anything else. Rarely do we ask the question, what does the Bible say about the church? We use our experiences and the immediate results that tend to trump in our heart whether a church is is moving in the right direction or not. So you may not be in the pool of candidates for deacon elections, but the reality of the Bible is all of it is inspired and all of it is profitable for you and for me. And so if we are growing in Jesus and we are being discipled into more godly men and more godly women and the church is being made more and more healthy, then whether you're qualified or not, whether you're in that list or not, the goal of our life should be to look like what the qualified deacons are and aren't. It's a list that we can all strive to achieve. So each person, whether you're recognized as a deacon or a pastor, should be growing in Jesus to the point that that if you've been a member of the church for several years... You should be making disciples. So Ephesians 4, chapter 11, we're going to walk through a lot of things. Let me pray, and then we will uh, dive in. Father, we come acknowledging that you're the ultimate leader of the church, that she's your bride, and that our local gathering is small and imperfect but loved and used by you. 
you perfect us and you sanctify us. So help us to grow in you. May your word place roots in our lives that reach deep into our hearts and transform us from the inside out, making us more and more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he, that's Jesus, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. I'm going to pause, right? In Genesis, we walked through a lot, and and, and today we're not. We're going to walk through verses slowly. There's four different groups that, that Paul mentions that Jesus has given to this local church in Ephesus. The first group, apostles and prophets, are often listed together. In fact, in Ephesians 2, 20, Paul says, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, talking about the church, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So what Paul is saying is he's listing apostles and prophets, he's listing them in their proper titles in the early church. Apostles, capital A, and prophets were foundational to the New Testament church because the word of God had not been fully written and circulated yet. The Bible as we know it was not complete. Think Paul is writing Ephesians. He still has other letters that he's going to write. So capital A apostles are men like Peter, James, John, Paul, who walked with Jesus, right? With the exception of Paul, who has a pretty miraculous (laughs) salvation story in Acts anyways. But those men physically and literally walked with the physical Jesus and were discipled by him. And so what Paul is saying in Ephesians is Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the throne. He's not physically on the earth anymore, but he has not abandoned the church. He gave apostles and prophets, which I would argue with you in in the sense of capital A apostles and capital P prophets have ceased because the Bible is complete And so the reference to uh, prophets that that Paul is making is probably not Old Testament prophets like we think. Their their job was to proclaim. And so these men, it seems to be, were given the ability to proclaim and to speak clearly, sometimes to specific people in specific instances, other times to large groups of people in certain and specific ways. But either way, it's not people speaking to somebody saying like, like a fortune teller which we sometimes think prophets are, right? Hey, you're going to have a really bad day. Or, hey, you got some good stuff coming for you. That's not what, what Paul is talking about when he says prophet. When a prophet proclaims something, they don't proclaim how great your life is going to be or how bad your life is going to be. They proclaim in glory in Christ. Now, with the Bible, complete as we have it, Prophets are proclaiming God's word, the Bible. So if somebody tells you they're a prophet and then they tell you something that's not in the Bible, you can just say, I just don't know which God you're prophesying for. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. And if you look at the Bible, the Holy Spirit, when he talks or he inspires people to talk, every time they glorify Jesus. Every time. And so right now, if if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us, and God himself dwelling inside of us will never tell us anything that contradicts Scripture because if the Holy Spirit dwells in us and the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture, if he contradicts it, then it means he lies, and God can't lie. So just a, a word of warning. The Holy Spirit is a spirit, but he's not the only one. There are evil spirits, demons, and Satan are real, the Bible tells us, and they are around as well, and they would love for you to mistake them for the Holy Spirit. So, 
apologists, uh, apostles, prophets. He also gave evangelists, which seemed to be serving in a very similar role as apostles. Apostles means sent ones in its most basic form, and evangelists seem to be that role. They're sent out to various churches. They just don't carry with them the authority that an apostle carried with. They had the gift of, of drawing people to Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, but maybe they weren't as gifted in discipling and staying with people. And then you have shepherds and teachers, which is one group. It's pastors. Those who are called to look after the local church, the flock, to teach them the word of God. Now, we could spend a lot of time just walking through what all of those roles are and those positions, and we'll do some of that in next week's sermon. But in this week's sermon, what I want you to see in this passage is a phrase that we just glanced over really quickly. He gave. See, there's a lot of people who feel like the local church isn't working anymore. There's a lot of people who believe that we should move on from the local church. We should fundamentally change what the local church looks like or how it functions. And maybe there's some truth to that, but there's also truth that that, that the local church is only as healthy and we should only move as far as the Bible calls us to be moved. I want to surprise you with a local church passage. If you're quick at flipping the Bible, Revelation 1 is where we're going to go. This is Revelation 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 10. John, writing this, has a vision on the island of Patmos. The Lord gets a hold of him, Jesus. And so he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to seven churches. Seven, we've been in Genesis. Seven's an important number. It means completion. Seven days of creation, seven churches, and then, then John names the churches. Jesus names these churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Those are seven real churches that existed in John's day. And so Jesus shows up to John on the island of Patmos and says, write to these seven churches, these specific ones. And if you keep reading in Revelation, you'll see that there's these little snippets of letters, and it's not always good. You've lost your first love. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're lukewarm. And so I'm going to spew you out of Those are what God gives to these churches. They're local. It's not talking about a universal church. It's talking about these local bodies of churches. But, but let's keep reading. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Seven again, completion. In the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. That's what the priests wore. The hairs of his head were white white, like white wool, like snow. That means he's got wisdom from age, but not the physical corroding body that often comes with age. His eyes were like flame of fire, which means he sees everything clearly and perfectly. His feet were like burnished bronze or fined in a furnace. That means that they're planted and they're not going to move. His voice was like the roar of many waters, clear, articulate, and loud. Nothing else is going to be heard. In his right right hand he held seven stars this is not the left hand the right hand is the hand of power 
From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. We know from from Timothy that in the Bible, the double-edged sword is the word of God. So from his mouth comes the word of God. His face was like the sun shining in full strength, meaning his glory is just on full display. Think Moses when he comes off of Mount Sinai. He's glowing because he's been in the presence of the Lord. Or Jesus when he comes down from the mountain at the transfiguration, he is glowing because he's been in the presence of God's glory. And I love what John writes. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John passes out. That's not the picture culture, pre- uh, culture gives us of Jesus. That's not the picture a lot of churches give us of Jesus. The picture a lot of churches give us of Jesus is a weak Jesus. I would love for you to accept me, but if not, it's okay. What John says is he sees Jesus in his glory and he falls down like he's dead because he is petrified. Keep going, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. Jesus says, I am. That's an important word. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen and those that are, and those that are to take place after this. That's a roadmap for Revelation if you want it. What you have seen, those that are taking place, and those that take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. There's some debate on, on what's meant there. Angel means messenger. So, so John and Jesus very well could be saying these are angels that are over each church, or, or it could be seen as these are pastors that the Lord has given each church. There's a little bit of debate, but either way, there's these important figures in these local churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, here's what we need to see in this passage that helps us understand, especially with church leadership. Did you catch where Jesus was standing? He's given this massive description of his power and his glory and his might. But did you catch where Jesus is standing in the passage? In the midst of the lampstands. The seven churches. Jesus has John write to these real churches. These are local churches. And what we're taught is Jesus is standing right in the middle of them. That he hasn't left them. That he hasn't abandoned them. That he's not done with them. That he's in the midst of the seven churches, holding the seven angels. See, the universal church is is the church described as Christians throughout all time past, present, future, all Christians throughout the whole entire scope of, of the world, of, of time, is the universal church that the Lord has. But what he, Jesus is talking about here is not the universal church. He's talking about local churches. It's not one lampstand, it's seven, and he names them. 
And so the local church is very much like an embassy that has these little posts that are spread out across this foreign country, this foreign kingdom that represents the rights and the well-beings of citizens of that kingdom who live in a different kingdom. So if we're believers in Jesus, we belong to the kingdom of God. And in the local church, we baptize people who profess faith in the kingdom of God, faith in Jesus over any other kingdom. We eat a meal with one another if we profess Jesus in the Lord's Supper. And we acknowledge that we're sojourners, that this isn't our home, that we belong to a different kingdom. And so what Jesus is happening, what what we see going on in the local church is Jesus gives these words of encouragement and these words of condemnation as he's standing in the middle of the churches. He hasn't abandoned his bride. He's actively watching and working, sending the Holy Spirit, sending apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, pastors to his church. This isn't unbelievers. These are church members, people who claim to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And Paul understands this as he's writing this letter to another local church, Ephesus, which is also in Revelation. And if you don't know Paul's story, he was a Jew who hated Christians. Not to spoil next week's sermon, but Paul holds everyone's coat while Stephen is martyred. And Stephen was one of the first deacons that was voted on. And so Paul was given permission to go imprison Christians in Damascus. And he's on the road to Damascus. And Jesus shows up in this massive way where he blinds Paul. He takes this murderer who's filled with legalistic hate and a lack of love. And he changes him in such a a dramatic way that it's hard to imagine Christianity without the Apostle Paul. Paul never saw Jesus before this physical encounter he has with him. But you know what Jesus says to Paul in Acts chapter 9, verse 4? And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul had never gone after Jesus. What he was doing was going after Christians and churches. And so Jesus is so associating himself, so connecting himself to his bride, to his people, that to persecute a local church is to persecute Jesus. See, it's important for us as gospel-centered believers to know that Jesus has not forgotten his church. Jesus doesn't look at us with nine-tenths of our pews empty. Members living in sin, other members being legalistic, other members being licentious, other members not attending, and other members looking shamefully on those who who do not attend and, and judging other members for exercising their freedom and then exercising their freedom. Jesus doesn't look at the mess of what our church can be and say, I'm done, I'm over it, I don't care about the church anymore. We need to do some parachurch or some other thing to make this work. I mean, just look in Scurry County. How many churches do we have? Charismatic, traditional, independent, pragmatic, practical, seeker-sensitive, Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Church of Christ, non-denominational, non-non-denominational. Each iteration, each time there's a church, each one of those things ends up happening because there's a church that does something that's too much for some people or not enough for other people, and so they leave and they go to either a different church or they leave and they stay home because no church is good enough for them and their family, or they leave and they plant a church, etc., etc. The pattern goes on and on and on because it's a pattern that's largely present because of sin. 
We are sinful people who are filled with pride and arrogance, and we genuinely believe that everybody else is the problem. Listen to what Paul says in verse 12 of Ephesians 4, right? He, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Jesus has not forgotten about the local church. In fact, Jesus has given the local church leaders whose job is to not do all the ministry. A church that just hires ministers to go do the ministry is not a biblical church. What Jesus is saying is, I've given you these people so that they can in turn equip you to do the work of the ministry. To build up the body of Christ. See, our job, brothers and sisters, is not to make converts. Our job is is not even really just to baptize as many people as we possibly can and then plug them in the church to get them to serve. Our job is to make much of Jesus in the finished work of the cross. Our job is to be gospel-centered, not just when we're here, but when we're out living our lives out and about. Our job is to help other members, help saints do the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ that Jesus has given. Our job is to take whoever walks through our doors, whoever comes into our sphere of influence, meet them where they're at in life, and help them grow in Jesus a little bit more. And did you catch what Paul says? The reason we equip saints for the work of ministry, the reason that we uh, build up the body of Christ is to attain unity. That in the local church, it's not my way or the highway. It's a unity of the faith, a unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. It's growing up and being mature. Trusting in the fullness of Jesus. The point of the local church is to evangelize the lost and to disciple the found. So that we grow, that we mature. But those are hard standards to measure, right? Ephesians 4.14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What this means is we grow after salvation. That your faith in Jesus Christ should be deeper now than it was when you became a Christian. That the gospel is certainly for salvation and it is certainly for sanctification. See, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the church as a body. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. 
Praise God we're not all eyeballs. That God gives to the members of the body as he sees fit. What this means is that you're not accidentally here. That you're not accidentally a member of the church. That whatever role you are in, whatever gifts the Lord has given you, those gifts and those roles are meant to build up the body of Christ, the local church. And just because we have different roles doesn't mean that somebody is more important or less important than somebody else. We grow in the gospel, and this gospel growth doesn't produce disunity, it produces unity where we recognize that we're different from one another and that we have strengths and weaknesses that complement one another because we trust the Bible, we trust the gospel, we trust that the Lord is organizing his church. If we keep going, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part work is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see this argument that, that Paul is making? That when the church is equipped to do the work of ministry, that the body is built up. That when we attain the unity of faith because of the, son, the knowledge of the Son of God, when we grow up, when we mature in manhood, when we mature in, in womanhood, when we become spiritual adults as opposed to spiritual children, we're not tossed by all these waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Lord knows there is a ton of them out there that float around. That instead we speak the truth in love. That we grow up into Jesus. And when we do that with Jesus as the head, the rest of the body begins to get healthy and grow. The local church gets healthy. And from this health, the church builds itself up in love. It grows in love. And so what is love? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, Starting in verse 4. This is to a church. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own ways. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part what we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall now in full know in full, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. What Paul is saying is love is much more than we make it out to be as a feeling. That gets read at weddings, and it's about a church. That's what brothers and sisters, members of a church, are supposed to feel towards one another. 
And that second part where it kind of gets a little hazy with Paul, what Paul is saying is like, we can't really see what's going on. It's a mirror dimly. And, and one day we'll see what the Lord is doing when we, we die, the Lord takes us. But until that point, we love one another in this messy kind of relationship, even though it's foggy and it's hazy and we just don't understand everything because there's the faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. That's great for your marriage, but it's meant for your church. And so when this love shows up, when this unity shows up, and it starts with Christ's love for us, we grow. We're not spiritual children anymore. We mature in Christ. We're part of the body, the local church. One of the most overlooked spiritual disciplines that takes place in our church is the spiritual discipline of consistently and faithfully showing up Sunday morning services week in and week out. Hebrews 10.25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, in our finite minds, we think the opposite of unattendance is attendance. Right? That makes sense. But what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that's not true. Neglecting to not meet together is discouragement for the body. And meeting together is encouraging one another. Can you imagine a physical body except every other week you don't have a foot? Can you imagine a physical body except once a month you're missing an eyeball? The rest of the time you have it, but just once a month that eyeball's gone. Can you imagine your physical body except you're missing an arm? They joined the church years ago. They joined the body years ago, but they never really made an effort to attend. And they haven't been a part of the body in years. They're just hanging out, doing what arms do. The Christian life is about growing in the gospel, which draws us closer to Jesus, which unifies us with one another. At the bare minimum, it means attendance. So maybe you're wondering, I thought this was a sermon on church leadership. It is. Because Christ has not forgotten the local church. Christ is working through his body of believers planted in various places on the earth, including the weirdest places like Ira, Texas. And he has placed his church here to evangelize the lost and to disciple the found. So that those members who have been Christians for a number of years in the local church should be healthy and should be growing more and more. Not perfect, but growing towards perfection. The reality of discipleship is it's reproducible. It should be reproducing disciples in you. 2 Timothy 2.2 What you have heard from me in the presence of many faithful witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's Paul just throwing out a line that walks through what discipleship is. Paul taught Timothy. Timothy's to teach other men. Those other men that Timothy are teaching, he's supposed to teach them to teach other men. It's this chain of discipleship that goes on and on that you and I, if we are Christians, we are a part of a chain like that. At some point, we could trace back our spiritual lineage to this text. 
that because Paul poured into Timothy and Timothy poured into other men and those other men poured into other men and so on and so forth, all the way down to you and I, we're a part of that salvation chain. The question we have to ask is, does the chain end with us or does it continue going? The gospel is the message of salvation and sanctification. It's something that we claim to hold to, but if we internalize it and we never grow from it, then we miss what the biblical gospel is. It's Jesus in my place. It's the gospel message. This saves us initially, right? That we, uh, our wrath is, uh, for our sin is paid for by Christ. That we're credited with his righteousness so we can be with God. We can stand before God, not because of how great we are, but because of how great our Savior is. And that salvation, that gospel, unites us to Christ. It unifies us with God. We grow in Jesus. We learn to cast aside worldly flesh. We learn to to leave sinful things behind. We learn to slowly and painfully be made more holy, more holy in Jesus. All the while, we look around and we're also united to brothers and sisters. They're on this path to holiness too. And so we walk with them. The gospel unifies us. So if that's the case then the church isn't about getting what I personally want. It's about making much of Jesus in my life. So then church membership is not like Sam's, where you pay your due, you get discounts, you buy what you want, but you can always not pay it next year. The church membership isn't like the email list that you can sign up for at no cost, that you get a discount initially, and then they're going to bother you with all sorts of other emails until you either ignore them, you unsubscribe, or you put them in a spam folder. Church membership isn't like that. It means that you're committed to growing in Jesus personally, and you're committed to growing in Jesus with others. We're called to be the church, not just go to church. But listen, we don't finish that thought. We are called to be the church, not just go to church, but the church gathers. You and I alone are not the church. The church is a gathering, a body of brothers and sisters. So then when it comes to deacon elections... Really, all we're doing is looking around and say, well, this person's already doing what a deacon does. They already have been growing in the church. They've already been discipling other people. They're, they're not immature like a child. They've been growing in Jesus. And so now we're just recognizing, hey, these people are already doing what deacons do. They're already serving. They're, they're growing in Jesus. They're helping me grow in Jesus. You look at the New Testament pattern and see it's the same thing for pastors too. Paul, Timothy, Titus, Barnabas, others would travel around. They would plant these churches and they would stay in these churches and they would help them grow, largely working on discipling men who would then in turn take over as the pastors when Paul and Timothy and Titus and Barnabas left. And so maybe for you what the Lord is doing is he's saying it's time to uh, be active in the local church. It's time to lead. Like, what is your role here? How do you fit in? What are the gifts that God has has given to you? And just because you're gifted in one area doesn't excuse you from serving in another area. Just because you're wired a certain way does not give you permission to break the commands of Scripture. Your personality is not a permission to sin. 
So you can say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I'm not going to share the gospel. That's a lie from Satan. Satan would love for you to not share the gospel. He would love for you to feel inadequate and that it's not your gift, so you shouldn't do it at all. And that's direct rebellion against Jesus' command to make disciples in the Great Commission. That's like saying, I don't have the gift of hospitality, so I'm going to be a jerk to everybody I come across with. You may be better at some things than other things, but to disobey God because you're not wired that way is to reject Jesus as God. It's to say, well, I'm God, and I am unchangeable. God can change instead. So church leadership at its most basic level is just understanding that I'm supposed to be growing in Jesus and I'm supposed to be helping others grow in Jesus too. Church leadership is just saying, I'm going to use the gifts that God has given me and I'm going to stretch myself. I'm going to serve in ways that that, that might be a little bit uncomfortable, but I am committed and I am involved and I'm going to lead in areas as best as I can to help build up the body of Christ. The church leadership is an understanding that the gospel chain doesn't end with you. That you're called to make disciples, but more than that, you're called to make disciples who understand that their job is to go and make disciples. You should be thinking about your spiritual grandkids. We lead by serving in the local church. Help the body grow. And what you will find is the Lord will use you. Whether you have the label of deacon or not, it doesn't matter. The Lord will use you. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we do get to gather in this local church. And God, that you're not done with us yet. And we have so many flaws and so many struggles and so many issues. But God, you have given us the members that we need. You have equipped us with the gifts that we need. Help us to feel your gospel. Help us to cultivate, God, that love that we first experienced from you. We love because you first loved us. Help us to love our brothers and sisters who are here to disciple those who are members of our church and in turn, God, to evangelize the lost. Help us to lead our church, to grow the body and health, not by our own power, not by our own wisdom, not by our own strength, but by trusting and leaning into you more and more. Help us to lead by serving others in your name. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Tanner's going to lead us in worship.